Thank you for joining us for the sermon podcast of Northwest Presbyterian Church in Dublin, Ohio. Our church exists to celebrate the gospel through Christ-centered study, worship, and prayer, to connect in community through fellowship, accountability, shepherding, and outreach, and to love our city through sacrificial giving of time, treasure, and talents so that it might flourish as a place where Jesus is known. For service times and more information about our church, visit npcdublin.org. And now, Pastor Dave Shooter. I just saw a headline this week that the, um, the Harry and Meghan interview documentary on Netflix is uh, the most widely viewed show that they've ever put out there. Uh, so I assume that you've all watched it. I haven't watched it. I am the last person on the planet. Some of you are nodding your head no. Uh, we can start a fraternity, I guess, of people who didn't watch the video. Uh, but I, I imagine that if it were possible to do Herod the interview, Herod the interview, that it would be uh, very, very uh, well received too. I want, you, I want you to imagine that. Just imagine Herod the interview, uh, two men, uh, sitting facing each other, comfortable chairs. The room is probably dark. Uh, there's an interviewer, a notepad. He's very earnest. He's probably a little bit nervous because of uh, Herod's reputation. Uh, and of course, Herod's presence commands attention, fear, if not respect. He is obviously used to being in control of conversations. And our imaginary interview takes place several years before the Magi show up from the east looking for the king of the Jews. And so our imaginary interview begins. The interviewer uh, would probably say something like this. Uh, First of all, Herod, let me congratulate you once again on being chosen man of the year in Judea. 30 years in a row is quite a streak. It's very remarkable. Uh, Some would say that there really hasn't been any competition for years. And... Herod would say, thank you. I'm honored, of course, when you consider the period of economic prosperity that we've enjoyed, the new construction projects. Maybe you've been to the temple. Uh, When you think about the great relationships that I've fostered with the government in Rome over the past three decades, you'll see why I consider this an honor well-deserved. Speaking of Rome, your friendship with the Emperor Augustus is well-documented. You go back to uh, before he became emperor, and Herod would be nodding. He's like, but isn't it true that Augustus said uh, that he would rather be Herod's swine than Herod's son? Oh, <laughs> that crazy Augustus. <laughs> that sounds just like him. What a kidder. It does make you wonder why there's never been a Herod VBS, doesn't it? Maybe there will be next year. Who knows? (laughs) Elizabeth is taking notes. The interviewer might say, it couldn't be because two of your favorite sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, were found guilty in a Roman court of trying to overthrow you and executed. Herod would be like, well, I'll admit, the family has had some challenges. But whose family doesn't? Still, you know, the decision of the court is well known, and I respect it. Well, some would say that you orchestrated the court's decision. Next question. Herod's shadow looms over the Advent story because Herod's, uh, Herod's role 
in Advent. It is not just a note of history. He, he is, is not only on record as the ruler of the day in Judea, uh, which you know places uh, Jesus' Advent in history and reminds us that Advent is an event that actually happened, uh, that it's not a myth. But, but Advent uh, and Herod go together because you could say that Herod is kind of small t. Herod is the reason for the season. He's not the reason uh, for our worship this season. But he is the reason why we need the season. He is the reason why we need a different king. Herod, Herod is throughout the story of Advent in the background as an illustration of our need for a different kind of king. During the first Advent, Herod was powerful, ruthless, successful. He was a political survivor. He really was personal friends with the Emperor Augustus. Herod was strong on security. He knew how to put down rebellions. He collected enough taxes to keep Rome happy. Not everybody liked Herod, but during his reign, Judea went through a period of prosperity. During his reign, uh, the temple was rebuilt, and the temple that Herod rebuilt was considered one of the wonders of the world. So when, when uh, the actual events of Advent happen, Herod is no longer a rising star in the empire. He is about 70 years old. Uh, his health is failing at this point. And he is also deeply enslaved to a life of selfishness and a life of obsession. He has nurtured his agenda. He's nurtured his power. He is obsessed with his future. And when the, the wise men come and look for a new royal baby, Herod is nervous. And this makes everyone nervous because bad things happen when Herod is angry. Advent is the right time to think about what kind of king really, truly speaks to our hearts. What kind of king do we want to follow? And one way of understanding what kind of king our heart gravitates towards is to look at the legacy of the two kings in the Advent story, Herod and Jesus. Because the questions about legacy cast a long shadow over Advent. Herod the Great uh, 30 plus years on the throne when John the Baptist and Jesus are born, and he is obsessed with his legacy. He's built his whole life around his legacy. This baby arrives, people from the east come, and Herod is, is just on edge. The story of Advent is the story of two kings. Two ways to love, two ways to build legacy. One king, Herod, is passing from history. Another king, Jesus, is coming on to the stage of history. Both leave legacies, and ultimately, uh, each of the two kings describe the only really two legacies that a person can have at the end of the day. Ultimately, each king uh, will teach us a lesson about the kind of legacy that we might lead. So let's look at Herod 
He's not just the archetypal bad guy of the Advent story. He teaches us about the empty legacy of selfish love. I want to show just three uh, uh, three points from uh, from Herod's life, selfishness, and the legacy of insecurity. When the wise men ask, where is the one born king of the Jews? We've seen a star in the east, and we've come to worship him. Uh, they touch maybe the rawest of Herod's nerves. Here's why. Uh, Herod is not Jewish by ethnic background. Uh, his family is uh, converted to Judaism. He's not ethnically Jewish. He did not have a legitimate claim to the Jewish throne. He was a Roman appointee, and there were some Jewish worshipers who hated his compromises with Rome. That's probably the reason why he undertook this massive temple rebuilding project. The the reason why he rebuilt the temple and made it so splendid is he was trying to appease people who thought he was just a pretender. And, And this just sounds like the way politics is, right? With, with no legitimate claim, Herod spent a lifetime consolidating his power. I mean, you almost never wanted to go to a Herod family reunion. He, uh, in, he, you know, he uh, killed or imprisoned his brother-in-law, mother-in-law, eventually his favorite wife. His own son, Antipater, who Herod had hoped would follow him as king, got tired of waiting Dad was living too long, and so he tried to poison his dad. The plan backfired. He actually ended up poisoning his uncle. It's a little bit Keystone Cops, but it really happened. Hey, we're getting together for the holidays. Herod would send out the invitations. No thanks. Not going. Busy. I'm busy. Herod knew that there were many Jewish worshipers who were waiting for the Messiah, And God's anointed king coming uh, meant that he was going to lose power. So what is it that the wise men know that Herod doesn't know? This is the question. Well, at at the very least, Herod has another pretender to the throne to hunt down. At the very least. At the worst, it's the real deal. I mean, maybe God's king really had come. and, And it's from selfish motivation, that that Herod is animated to search for the the one-born king in Bethlehem. It's from selfish motivation that this horrible execution of the innocents in Bethlehem is ordered later in in Matthew 2. But as, as you watch it unfold, you see that Herod's insecurity blinded him to what God was really doing. Which is so often the case for the human heart, right? That, that when we live out of our insecurities, we're blind to what God is really doing. Because if Herod had clued into what God is doing, he would know that God's king is coming not to be a better political king, but to make political kings better by bringing change from the inside out. That, that God's coming king was not only going to do the same old thing better, but was going to do a new thing in the human heart, the, the new covenant thing, that, that he was going to bring about inside-out change. Herod actually needs the kind of king who's coming. He needs the kind of king who can lead him out of spiritual captivity. 
out of this bondageness to insecurity. That's the first legacy of Herod. The second legacy of Herod is the legacy of selfishness. So jealousy twists genuine love into possessiveness. That's the way that, that's one thing that jealousy does. Jealousy says, I love you, but I love me more. And I'm the true object of my affections. And so I'm going to love you in order to love me. And when that can't happen, I'm going to stop loving you. And that actually is a, a big part of the story of Herod's life. Herod's jealousy twists the great love story of his life. Herod, Herod had 10 wives. So that's another reason that family reunions were interesting. One of his 10 wives was named Mary Omni. Say it with me, Mary Omni. I just want to make sure you could pronounce it because I can't. Mary Omni. Some of, some of these wives were uh, involved with Herod because of marriages of political convenience. Make a treaty, get a wife. Every historical indication is that Herod really, really loved Mary Omni. That, that she was the one that he loved. When there was a catch. Mary Omni's parents had been Herod's arch rivals. And so he actually killed her parents. Again, I'm not saying this is good. I, I, I'm saying this is what happened. And Herod's love of Mary Omni twists into jealousy. Twice when Herod had to travel, and when you would travel, he'd be more vulnerable to plots against his life, right? That, that he's more safe in his palace, but when he goes on the road, he's less safe. Twice when Herod has to, to travel, he gave secret orders that if he were killed, Mary Omni should be killed too. Now, I mean, none of us do that when we travel for work, I hope. <laughs> but if you do, I'd recommend against it. But Herod could not bear the thought of someone else marrying her. He was that jealous. And, and um, Mary Omni found out about the orders. Again, there's a little keystone cops in the story. She found out about the orders, and this put a strain on their marriage, the commentators say. I'm like, I I'll bet it did. <laughs> and so she basically rejected Herod as her husband. And her coldness towards Herod made Herod receptive to, to slander about her. It, it opened up his heart to lies about her so that ultimately he had her executed. Herod loved Mary Omni, but not to the extent that he loved himself. Not to the extent that he loved his own power. Not to the extent that he loved her family. Not to the extent that he valued her as a person. He was interested in possessing her. What a legacy. It, it, it gets worse. Herod and the, the, the selfishness of Herod and the legacy of obsession. By the time that Jesus is born, Herod is about 70 years old and he is obsessed with his legacy. He'd, be, he'd become consumed with two aspects of his legacy. Who would succeed him and how would he be remembered? So he spent years trying to answer the who question. Remember, he had 10 wives. Many of these wives had sons. All of the wives wanted their son to be king. And initially, 
two of favorite wife Mariamne's sons emerged as contenders to take over. Herod worried that they might get cocky, so so while he had named them in a first will as contenders for the throne, he actually wrote a second will naming a, a third son as heir to the throne. And then Herod drafted will number three, naming all three sons as co-heirs. Where are our estate attorneys here? If you're an estate attorney, you might think, man, the sermon is never relevant to my job. You know, I'm like... (laughs) So there was a problem. A rumor spread that favorite sons one and two are plotting to kill Herod. So he throws them in prison. They're executed, which leads to will number four. Back to naming the third son as sole heir to the throne. Problem, this is the son who gets impatient, tries to poison Herod, but instead poisons the uncle. Which leads to Wills 5 and 6, listing different sons as successors, which helps explain a little bit why Herod gets upset when the Magi show up and say, where's the son born king of the, uh, king of the Jews? He just spent decades surviving assassination attempts, decades rewriting his will. Yeah, he'd, he'd given up you know, on different sons along the way, and now they're like, hey, there's someone else. He might have wondered if he had a different kid he forgot about. But he's obsessed by his legacy. And so he tries to hunt down the baby that they're looking for. Tragedy as a result of his obsession. Tragedy. So he was obsessed with the who. He was also obsessed with the how. He he worked hard to promote his memory after his death. He built a massive fortress on a hilltop named after, you know who? Himself, the Herodium. And it's true, the Herodium. And he envisioned that for generations after his death, people would walk by that hilltop fortress and say, what's that? Say, oh, it's the Herodium. What's that about? Well, that's where Herod's buried. By the end of his life, Herod was savvy enough to realize that he wasn't going to be mourned, that, that, that there wasn't going to be, remember like what, when Queen Elizabeth passed away and there was the public outpouring of, of grief, that Herod knew that that wasn't going to happen. So in order for there to be grief at his funeral, he ordered that Jewish nobles throughout the land would be killed when he died. If people weren't going to cry for Herod, they would cry for someone. Now, that order was not carried out. You know, people is like, you know, he's dead. We don't have to do that one. <laughs> and in a great moment of irony, Herod's tomb was lost to history and not discovered until 2007. And when the archaeologists discovered Herod's tomb, do you know what they discovered? It had been ransacked. So when they unearthed unearthed it, they discovered that it had been disgraced. That's Herod's legacy. His legacy of insecurity, which was painful to many. Jealousy, which ruined the, the best love story in his life. Obsession, which ruined so many lives. That's Herod. That's who's on the throne when Jesus and John the Baptist are born. 
And I think one of the great roles of Herod in the Advent story is simply to provide us a contrast with the kind of king that we really want. Because we, we look at Herod, and, and maybe it helps to have 2,000 years of perspective so that we can look back on the Herod story and we think, I, I wouldn't want that kind of king. But the reality is throughout human history, the human heart often wants that kind of king. You can just give Herod a different name, a different emperor and a different empire, a different king, a different queen, a different leader. We, we tend to invest our hope in humans who are invested in themselves. So let me ask you a question. What if there were a different way? What if there were a different king? What if there were a king who defined kingship and did kingship so differently from Herod that we just would be compelled to follow after him because his kingship would be so, so lovely? What if there was a different way? What if there was a more beautiful way in following the king to not only benefit from his legacy, but to learn how to build a legacy from him. Because, I mean, you might go home from here and you might be thinking about your legacy. You might think, well, I don't want to build the kind of legacy that Herod built. But what kind of legacy should I build? How do, how do I want to be remembered when I pass from the stage of human history? I'm fortunate to know how I will be remembered when I pass from human history. I will be remembered by my children, uh, not for chaperoning band camp or for a decade of orthodonture. Uh, I'll be remembered for the dishwasher speech. This is the speech that I give semi-annually to the family when I discover that they continue to believe that the dishwasher is a magic box. And... Uh, and if you too live in a family where your family thinks that the dishwasher is a magic box, I give this to you, and this can be my legacy in your life. But it comes to my attention from time to time uh, that people believe that the dishwasher is a magic box wherein uh, if you take a plate and if you stack a bowl like this, the simple intent that the bowl will get clean happens because the dishwasher is magic. That, that you can actually stack plates and bowls inside of each other in the dishwasher and simply by pressing start this uh, transformative, uh, some quasi-spiritual event happens inside the dishwasher whereby it gets clean. But I'm here to tell you that is not what happens. What actually happens is that the oatmeal flakes inside the bowl, which are stacked inside the plate, get baked on to the bowl. <laughs> And you might think that this magical event happens whereby the bowl gets clean. But what actually happens is that dad, who gets up at 5.30 in the morning and is retrieving a coffee cup from the dishwasher, opens it and sees that the magic has not happened. And what actually happens is he gets a green scrubby and he scrubs out all of the crusted cereal so that then you can have, a, I'm sorry that I'm breaking this news to the family right now. They will be crushed 
to discover that it's not a magic box. But I, I've, I've given that speech enough that I know that when my day comes and the family's gathered around and they're saying, well, dad, you know, gosh, what a guy. And what do we take away from dad? Well, we take away his obsession with the dishwasher. And apparently he loved that dishwasher so much that, that he kept giving us this speech over. I don't remember anything else he said. He didn't teach me to fish. He didn't teach me to hunt. He didn't teach me to ride a bike. It took us forever to get a dog. But I, I, I remember the dishwasher. They'll probably put my picture on their dishwasher. That's probably how I'll be remembered. That's for free. And you might think that's the best piece of pastoral advice I've gotten in a long time because I too thought it was magic. It's not. But we will leave legacies. And I, wanna, I just want you to think about Jesus as a king and just a little bit about his legacy and a little bit about how his legacy can inform your legacy and my legacy. Jesus actually talks about this, and he actually talks about this, in case you thought we've got completely off the rails, uh, he, he talks about this in connection with Advent. Not first Advent, but second Advent, his return, because that's part of the Advent season too, that, that we remember not only his first coming, but we live towards and for his second coming. This is what Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory. That's the Advent part. And the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus is clear that the best legacies are built in the opposite direction of Herod. That the best legacies are built on a life of saying no to ourselves in order to follow him. Legacies built on selflessness, not selfishness. Jesus says that it's possible to construct the greatest possible earthly legacy. And Herod did seem at that point in time to gain a lot of the whole world. That it's possible to gain the whole world and lose everything in the end. What a tragedy that would be. So here are three contrasts between Herod's legacy, Jesus' legacy, and connections to how Jesus' legacy becomes fruitful in our lives. How do we find a legacy worth having? First, through a secure love and self-forgetfulness. Herod's selfishness generated insecurities that created great pain for himself and for his whole corner of the world. Jesus was the opposite. He, he calls us to a denial of self which is not so much the self-denial of no more cookies today, but the self-denial, which I think the Puritans called self-forgetfulness. Because here is uh, what, what this word denial means in the dictionary. It's the refusal to pay attention to. Uh, it's the disregard for. It's the renunciation of oneself. 
If you think about how that maps onto our current cultural moment where we are, we are obsessed with ourselves. We build entire social media platforms so that we can share with the world our obsession with ourselves. Jesus says the, the, the way to really have a legacy is to say no to yourself. But, but you say no to yourself, not because you're so bad, but because you're so valued that, that your true value is in the love that you have from the Father. Throughout the Gospels, I mean, the, the entire Gospel account is an account of Jesus' self-forgetfulness. I mean, I, I sat there and I stared at the computer yesterday and I'm like, well, I need a good example of Jesus' self-forgetfulness. The entire New Testament uh, would serve as an example. But here are just a few. Jesus heals many, gathers a crowd, and then in Matthew 15, he says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. He's just done all of these miracles. He could easily say, hey, you know what? I'm taking a day off. You're up, Peter. They're forwarding my calls to you. But he doesn't. He's like, I see the people. They're hungry. I, I, can, I can forget myself in order to love them. And in the most vulnerable moment in his life, he takes himself out of the center of the frame of the picture. Father, if you are willing, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, just uh, moments before his arrest and eventual execution. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And then what does he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Self-forgetfulness. How can Jesus be this self-forgetful? Well, one reason must surely be because he, he not only heard but believed in entirety the voice of his father who said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That, that he lived out of the pleasure of the father in him. That, that if the father was pleased in him, he could say no to himself. If the father was pleased in him, that, that he didn't lose anything by not being the center of his own life. That, that if he was the center of his father's love, that was enough. But here's the thing, loved ones. This, this is also for you. This is not just for Jesus. This is for you. For, for John writes in 1 John, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what he will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is, that you can know the Father's love. And if you know the Father's love, you can live that same, I can live that same kind of self-forgetful life. Christians increasingly secure in our Father's love can build legacies of moving towards others. Wouldn't you rather be remembered that way? That, that there's a lady, there's a guy who had freedom to keep moving towards others with care. This is really where Christians have shined for the past 2,000 years, moving towards outsiders. What a witness we would have in our culture if we lived out of this self-forgetfulness. A few less selfies. A few more laying down our lives for others. So the legacy of self-forgetfulness the legacy next of selfless love. Selfless love, I, I was wondering, what, what's the opposite of jealousy? Herod was obsessed with and, and jealous. What's the opposite? 
well, you can't do better than 1 Corinthians 13. And, and the dictionary, you know, I looked up, well, what's the opposite of jealousy in the Bible? And they're like the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. I'm like, well, that's too long to quote. So I'll just do a couple of verses. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist in its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Phil Riken, current president of Wheaton College, wrote in his commentary on 1 Corinthians 13 that 1 Corinthians 13 both shows us who Jesus is and shows us who we are or who we can be when we're united to him. Because 1 Corinthians 13 is, is not just to hang up in your in your kitchen about how to be a lovely person. It describes the fruit of the Holy Spirit produced in you. The, the, the fruit of love. What does love look like when a sinner is saved by grace, united to Christ, and love is produced in him? Well, it looks like the opposite of Herod. It looks like this. Patient kind. Not envying, not boastful, not arrogant, not rude. It does not insist on its own way. So much Jesus. Not irritable or resentful. Does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices at the truth. But that's not just Jesus' legacy, that's your legacy. If you're a Christian, that can be your legacy. That's, that's what the Holy Spirit produces in His people. And finally, lasting glory, selflessness and lasting glory. Again, so much of the New Testament takes us in this direction. But if you just had a verse, you couldn't do better than John 17, 24, Jesus' high priestly prayer, praying for all the church, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What a contrast to Herod. Herod just grasping for glory. Pick the right son, pick the right son. Okay, a couple of sons to keep all the wives happy. Okay, those sons tried to kill me, so not those sons. Okay, sorry about my brother, can't pick that son. Just so much, I guess I'll build a great tomb. And, and that's how I'll have glory after death. I, I'll build such a great tomb that people will come and they'll say, gosh, that Herod, what a guy. Glorious in death. But what if there was a better way? What if there was a king whose tomb you couldn't find? What if there was a king who had so much glory intrinsic to himself that he made it the priority of his heart in the moments before his death to say to his father, I, I just want this. I, I just want the people of the church to be with me, to see my glory where I, I am going, the glory that you've given to me from before the foundation of earth, the glory that I've always had. I, I want them to come into it too. I have glory to spare. I have glory to see. I don't need to hoard it. I don't need to fabricate it. It's intrinsic to me. Father, this is what I want. I want them to have the glory too. How do you think the Father answered that question? Well, go to Jerusalem and look for Jesus' tomb. That's how he answered the question. So that when he returns in his glory, 
there will be just two kinds of people ultimately. Those who have said yes to themselves and no to Jesus and lived a life of self-exaltation. And they will discover that the first or last, there will be another kind of person. There will be the kind of person who heard the call of Jesus, who said, follow me and say no to yourself. Deny yourself. Live a life of self-forgetfulness. You can live a life of self-forgetfulness and lose nothing in return because I'm going to give you everything. That's the other kind of person. Advent says, be that person. Here, here's an amazing thing. Herodium. Do you know what? I mean, some of you know because you've heard sermons before, but some of you might not know. Do you know where Herodium is built? Bethlehem. Herod built his tomb in Bethlehem. Do you know what's going to happen on Christmas Eve in Bethlehem? Nobody's going to go there. You're going to watch video from Manger Square where the pilgrims are there. Not Mike and Laura. <laughs> Probably. But if you plan to surprise trip to Bethlehem, I'm super sorry. <laughs> and the eyes of the world and the songs of the church will remember this place where a different king came. A king worth following. A king whose legacy of selflessness and self-denial and of sharing glory. A, a, a king who, uh, who loved his people so much that he's like, he's like I, I'm not going to make people die to prop me up. I'm going to die to lift them up. That king, that king you can follow. Would you? Would you? Are you? Will you? We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon podcast. Subscribe to our podcast. And for more information about our church, our values, mission, and ministries, visit npcdublin.org.